0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is late in the afternoon, California time on January the 4th, 2022. Two days more and we'll be, and I'm celebrating, I'm not sure if that's the right word, we'll be marking the year anniversary of uh, the January 6th insurrection or whatever you want to call it in Washington, D.C. We all know the images. They have been burnt onto our consciousness. And um, in this year anniversary, there's more and more talk of political violence and instability in the United States. Uh CNN headline from this morning suggests that the January 6th committee is seeking the cooperation of uh, Fox News's Sean Hannity. I'm not sure if Sean Hannity is a particularly cooperative character, but we will see on that. Meanwhile, um, apparently since January 6th of last year, according to the Washington Post, at least the pro-Trump internet, that's about half the internet, has descended into its own kind of civil war over money and followers. This issue of the civil war in the United States is increasingly a pertinent, resonant and worrying one. A Washington Post headline from this morning suggests that the United States um, might be heading towards civil war. The might, of course, is critical. Uh, one. Prominent writer, the Canadian Stephen Marsh, has a new book out. He's actually going to be on the show tomorrow. He believes that the next United States civil war is already here. He says this in a, Washington, in, a in a Guardian piece. He says that the U.S. military isn't ready for the war. And he suggests that um, secession might be the, the lesser of two evils between civil war. It's also the less likely in the Washington Post. He's been quite prolific um he's not alone in suggesting that we are edging towards civil war, edging closer, according to the very well-respected New York Times columnist Charles Blow. Meanwhile, there are one or two people who don't believe that we are heading towards we, meaning the US, is heading towards civil war. Fintan O'Toole, the Irish uh, political columnist, warns that the... The prophecies of civil war might actually encourage civil war, so he's encouraging us not to believe too much. Meanwhile, there's a really good new book out, uh, perhaps one of the more balanced books about the likelihood of civil war by the San Diego-based political scientist and expert on civil conflict, Barbara F. Walter. Uh, The book is entitled How Civil Wars Start, And I'm thrilled and honored that Barbara is joining us from her home in San Diego, California, and just down the road from me in San Francisco. Uh, Barbara, uh, Stephen Marsh and you are bound together, for better or worse, because your books have come out at the same time. He seems to be a little bit more pessimistic than you. Uh, I really enjoyed your book because I think it's very balanced and fair. Are you tilting towards the Marsh position of the inevitability of civil war in the United States, or are you more in the um, uh, uh, uh the the, uh, the camp that suggests that prophecies of civil war will only encourage violence?
1: You know, I'm a social scientist and I'm an expert on civil wars. For the last 30 years, I've spent my career studying conflicts in places like Iraq and Syria, Mozambique, uh, Northern Ireland. Um, And I'm really interested in the patterns that we see across these many cases and over time. And one of the things that I've learned um, is that civil wars, no matter where they break out, tend to follow similar patterns and that we can actually um, predict with some degree of accuracy, which countries are at, our, which countries are at high risk of civil war. Uh, for the last four years, I served on a task force run by the US government called the Political Instability Task Force. And the task that they gave us, and it was a mix of um, social scientists and data analysts, the the task they gave us was to come up with a predictive model that helped to predict where political instability and violence was likely to break out outside the United States. We never looked at the United States. Um, uh, it was really other countries that we were interested in. It, in. And we sat around a table and we brainstormed and we we thought about what are all the possible factors. Sorry
0: to jump in, Barbara. Who, who else was on the uh, the political instability committee and why? I'm I'm curious. It was a CIA, uh, was it a CIA finance or supported committee? How how was it set up?
1: Oh, I don't actually it's I think it was probably done through the Department of Defense, but it was the 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 intelligence agency that actually um, ran the task force.
0: And who um, how, how many people were on it? And who uh, just give me a couple of other names.
1: Um, so it was. Probably about um, eight to 10 academics, and they rotated depending on whether Mm. they were available or not. Um, People would stay for a number of years, and then um, they'd move on to other things. Um, And and I I don't feel comfortable giving giving them. I I I don't know if they want to, Um, but the the task force is public. It has a Wikipedia page. Um, I don't have a security clearance. I I don't have any access to... Mm. um, Uh, classified material Uh, my job was really just to um, to act as a a consultant to to bring my expertise on what we know um, about civil wars um, to the task force to to help the U.S. government try to determine where around the world we might see trouble.
0: Barbara you begin the book with this word which I actually didn't I wasn't familiar with Then I of course went to not only Wikipedia, but my dictionary to figure out what it meant. Anocracy, A-N-O-C-R-A-C-Y. And this seems to be the key word in figuring out whether or not America is likely to fall into civil war. Describe, uh, define what anocracy means and why it's such an important word.
1: Yeah, so inocracy is just a fancy word for um, a partial democracy. It's a country whose government is neither fully democratic nor fully authoritarian. It's something in between. Some people call it partial democracy. Fareed Zakaria has called it an illiberal democracy. Um, Viktor Orban, who's the, the president of Hungary, um, he actually very quite proudly says that his government is an illiberal democracy. Um, so if you think about um, governments as sitting on a spectrum between fully autocratic and fully democratic, anocracies sit in the middle zone. The reason anocracies are important and the reason why um, I start the book with them, is that this model that was developed um, after putting in 56 different variables, everything from poverty to income inequality to um, how heterogeneous ethnically a country was, we put in all these variables and only two ended up coming out, um, particularly important in helping to predict where we're likely to see. of violence. The first was this variable we call anocracy. Um, countries that um, had elements of both autocracy and democracy were the ones that were at greatest risk of civil war. In fact, when we looked at the data, the most democratic countries and the most autocratic countries um, rarely had civil wars. The civil wars tended to happen in the middle. The second factor was what we called ethnic factionalism. And that's a fancy word for societies whose populations begin to organize politically around ethnic, racial, or religious identity. And then they seek to bring themselves to power uh, with the intent of excluding everybody else. So if you think about, um, what would be an example of this? Um, If you think about the former Yugoslavia, um, after the Soviet Union collapsed and Yugoslavia attempted to become democratic, um, and they held, uh competitive elections for the first time people like slobodan milosevic, who was a former communist um realized that the only way that he was going to have any chance to get enough votes uh, to propel himself into power was if he played on Serbian nationalism. he was a Serb, Serbs represented um, yeah you largest- call
0: um you you call milosevic and actually Tujman you have a wonderful description yeah. uh, you call them. Ethnic entrepreneurs, what what do you mean by that?
1: So ethnic entrepreneurs uh, are often politicians, but they can be business leaders, they can be religious leaders, they can be um, uh, media personalities. These are individuals who play on ethnic, religious, or racial identity to help develop a base who will support their own uh particular goals um so you could think about uh social media personalities like alex jones um he's an ethnic entrepreneur who has um quite successfully profited by playing on uh white racial uh uh, white spheres of racial Uh, Abraham x
0: kendi um gave a very nice blurb to your book is he also an ethnic entrepreneur
1: Oh uh, no! Absolutely not. Um, <clears throat> it's these are people oftentimes who want political power. Um, so, uh, who actually Milosevic actually had shown absolutely no inclination towards of Serb nationalism before um, communism basically fell apart in Yugoslavia. He was strictly instrumental. He knew he was going to lose the election because if he ran as a communist, Yugoslavs didn't like communists. um, And he had to very quickly figure out what was going to um, convince people to vote for him and not somebody else, and and he basically created this narrative that Serbs needed to stick together, and if they didn't stick together, that Croats were going to coalesce ale- uh, against them, and their and their um, status in Yugoslavia was going to decline as a result. So that's quite different than what. Kendi, who is a, a scholar and a writer is doing, um, who's collecting facts and who is who is really just describing um, what the situation is in the United States today. He is not crafting. Um, he is not trying to, um, what's the word I want to use? Um, yeah, stir, stir up. He does, he's not trying to stir up. So, so, Barbara, uh, okay. let, let's go back to the
0: original question. You suggested that in, on your committee you found two key variables: the yeah. existence of anocracy and these deep racial ethnic divisions. Let's return yeah. to America. What does that tell us about the possibility of civil war in the United States in twenty in the twenty twenties?
1: Hmm. You know, I, I I can't tell you exactly. Um, uh, if civil war is going to happen here, when it's going to happen here. We, we do, do imagine have-
0: it in the book. You suggest, yeah. uh, in fact, um, uh, there was a quote from the New York Times, uh, the review um, about November 2028 with yeah. bombs going off across the country uh, as there are wildfires in California. So you do imagine it. You speculate yeah. very fearfully, of course.
1: Yeah. So the way to think about this is we know that countries that have these two factors anocracy and identity politics um, are at almost a a four percent annual risk of civil war. Now, on the surface, four percent seems small, but it's actually not. Um, So if those two conditions continue, if if a country doesn't reform its political system so that it becomes a full democracy, if its parties continue to break down along these racial or ethnic lines, um, then over a 30-year period, that 4% or almost 4% annual risk turns into an over 100% risk. So it's very similar to the risk of smoking. If you, if I were to start smoking today, my risk of dying of lung cancer, dying because of smoking would be rel- relatively low. But every year that I continue to smoke increases my risk to the point where it would be quite high after a few decades.
0: After a few decades, you'd probably catch fire, Barbara, if you smoke too much, <laughs> just like America. Um, One of the things I I found uh, very interesting and important in your book, and actually Marsh uh, echoes what you're saying, is that you make it clear that if there is a civil war in the United States in the 2020s or 2030s, it's not going to be like the the civil war that divided the North and (laughs) South in the 19th century. Now, race may play an important role. Uh, But as as you say in the book, uh, if America has a second civil war, The combatants will not gather in fields. They will slip in and out of the shadows, communicating online to plan their resistance, strategizing how to undermine the government at every level and gain control of parts of of America. They will create chaos and fear. And then they will force Americans to pick sides. And and you, I think, remind us in the book that if there is a sort of a, a little bit of a dress rehearsal for this, it was the. Yeah. Uh, the alleged plot to, to kidnap uh, the Michigan governor, Gretchen Whitmer, and the sort of the growth of uh, uh, Michigan neo-Nazi parties. So explain how Michigan might sort of give us the background, the promise, the seeds of this kind of fragmentary civil war.
1: yeah. Well, I guess there's a number of points I want to make. The, the first point is that 21st century civil wars are not like 19th century civil wars, and there's a really good reason for that. Um, governments and their militaries have become significantly more powerful um, than they were back then, you know, especially in the United States. One of the things that most Americans don't know is that the US military in 1860 consisted of about 16,000 soldiers. Think about that, 16,000 soldiers. And most of those soldiers were stationed out west to defend against, quote unquote, um, Indian, Indian raids. So if you were the Confederacy and you were thinking of challenging the US government, it wasn't crazy to think that you could actually defeat them. It is crazy for anybody, any group in the United States today, to think that they could defeat the U.S. military. The U.S. military has over 2 million soldiers, and it has the capacity to move those soldiers very, very rapidly to any part of the country. So the challenge for um, civil wars or insurgencies today is how do you challenge these very, very powerful governments? And the strategy that's, that has emerged um, and that the far right here in the United States talks about is a strategy called leaderless resistance. Um, It's very, very similar to sort of terrorist cells um, where you have lots of small, militias, paramilitary groups, terrorist organizations. It's very decentralized. It's not hierarchical. They often operate independently. And one of the things that um, these groups have figured out is that this is much, much harder for um, a government to defend against than a hierarchically organized, centralized, more conventional um, force. And so um, this is actually outlined. the The strategy by which the far right should attack the federal government is outlined in a book called The Turner Diaries, um, which is considered the far right, uh, the Bible of the far right. Um, and up until December of 2020, you could purchase that on Amazon. I did. Um, when I purchased it on Amazon, Amazon recommended a whole series of additional white supremacist <laughs> material that I could also purchase oh, alongside damn, it. Damn. Um, so it was actually quite shocking how, how quickly somebody could access um, this material. Timothy McVeigh, when he um, bombed the the federal building in Oklahoma City in the 1990s, there were pages of the Turner Diary um, in his truck.
0: Yeah, and um, you do add in the book, in and in again, a, a way that's rather concerning, and we've had many shows about this, the role of social media, yes. particularly in the, the, the civil war in Myanmar and the role of Facebook. So clearly, the digital revolution, which was supposed to democratize, might indeed be inciting civil war potentially we are talking with the san diego-based political scientist and expert world authority on civil conflict barbara f walter her new book out today how civil wars start is i think inevitably going to be a bestseller she's done the rounds i think this is the last interview of the day for barbara but she's done many Um, after the break barbara i want to talk um, about trying to avoid the civil war, because as you yeah. say, civil wars are not inevitable. Um, and we collectively, and particularly as Americans can try to head it off. So, uh, after about a 60 second break, we're going to talk yeah. about fixing America or making sure that, uh, we don't degenerate into civil war. So we'll see you after the break. Hi everyone. Andrew here again, I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keen On show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keen On show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other you can watch these shows live. Uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook, I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh recorded videos, uh not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with Barbara F. Walter, the uh, author of How Civil Wars Start, uh, Barbara certainly doesn't think that war in the United States or anywhere is inevitable. Uh, there's a chance, just as if you smoke, there's a chance you'll get cancer. The more you smoke, the bigger the chance, but nothing's inevitable, Barbara. Um, you, One of the people you refer to in the book, I've interviewed him actually for my How to Fix Democracy series, is Eric Liu, one of America's leading citizenship activists. Yeah. How key do you think... Is American communal rebuilding, this restoration of the ideal of citizenship, is it the best insurance against civil war in the 2020s or 2030s?
1: You know, there's a saying that all good things go together um, and uh, increasing civic unity, increasing investing more heavily in in civic education. All of that is really important. We have been defunding um, civics education for for decades. And the result is that um, most Americans don't really understand how our government works. They don't understand how power is divided and who wields power. And one of the arguments Eric makes in one of his fabulous books is that if you don't understand how much power you have, if you don't understand um, how it can be taken, how, how it can be used and exploited, then there will be people out there, nefarious people who will take your power away from you. And before you know, know it, you will be, um, disenfranchised in various ways. So that is one element of it, but there's, you know, just as all good things go together, oftentimes all bad things go together as well. And, um, I guess you know when I think about what can we do what what are some of the more immediate things that that we can do I really think of of three things the first thing I think about is simply making people aware of what's happening. Uh, in all my years, the people that I interview who've lived through civil wars, whether it's in Sarajevo or in the Ukraine or in Iraq, they all say the same thing. They all say that they didn't see it coming. And that, in fact, when they look back on it and they try to figure out what happened, they're still surprised that it happens. Um, and there, there, there is something that, that civil wars sneak up on people. And part of that is because um, extremists are the ones who are working behind the scenes um, to, to instigate these, these kinds yeah, of... Like you, uh,
0: you refer to a woman in, in Sarajevo. Uh, I actually lived in Sarajevo in, 80, yeah. 80 80, uh, 80, in 1982 to 1983. I was at the university for nine months and no one imagined civil war. And yet yeah. by the end of the, the 80s, uh, Sarajevo was the center of the Yugoslav civil war. So in terms of the warning, what should Americans bear in mind if, if they're not aware of it? How do you become aware of something you're not aware of? Hmm.
1: Well, we have these two factors that we know about, right? We know that if your democracy declines and it, it, it falls into this middle zone, that's the high risk zone. Um, and one of the things that is surprising... So that's the
0: anocracy I'm not convinced, though, that America is an anocracy. Do you believe it is?
1: Uh, well, the experts and I would include myself in that. Uh, yes, I I would. It it was classified as an anocracy based on the data that we use for this uh, model back in January of 2021.
0: But this is post-Trump America. Where's the evidence of America falling into dictatorship?
1: Oh no, anocracy is not dictatorship at all. Well,
0: the elements of dictatorship.
1: So, so the you know I the three so the U.S. was first downgraded. So the scale goes from negative ten, most autocratic, to positive ten, most democratic. I understand. Okay, so the three it was downgraded in 2016, um, in part uh, as a result of partisan uh, meddling in the elections, and in part because the U.S.'s intelligence agencies. Um, determined that there was a concerted effort by the Russian government um, to meddle in the elections as well. It was downgraded again in um, 2019 um, as a result of um, uh, sort of the expansion of executive power um, that Trump, uh, unlike uh, most, uh, uh, unlike other presidents refuse to cooperate with congress in any way and the main check on executive power in the united states is the is congress and what was so surprising during the trump administration was that republicans in congress ceded their power to the president they refused to check his behavior and and that's highly unusual people Congress usually doesn't like to give up its its power, and Republicans have been giving it up to the president. And in fact, Arthur Schlesinger years ago had a name for, for what's developing in this country, and it is the imperial presidency. And a powerful executive, more powerful than any other branch, is not particularly democratic. And then um, the third... Um, element uh was in january 21 it was downgraded again um because of uh an attempt by the president to overturn the election um both at the state level and and then by encouraging the insurrection so
0: probably the best people who are or the most effective way to head off civil war in america might be the work of people like liz cheney who are trying to reform the republican party and 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 Recognize constitutional norms, fight against Trump, and that sort of authoritarian impulse within the party.
1: Yeah, well, I, it's it's great that there are a few Republicans who are fighting this good fight, but but their numbers are not large enough to ensure that any sort of democratic reform will take place. Um, so I actually believe in the power of of nonviolent protests. Erica Chenoweth. Has done in really fantastic research on this that um, if you have large, sustained, um, mass protests on an issue, that uh, governments uh, do eventually make concessions. And I think of the American public um, be- became incested about this slide away from democracy, and they insisted. Um, from their their leaders that there there was reform, that we would start to see some movement. I also actually think that the business community um, could be instrumental in South Africa. The only reason that the apartheid regime eventually agreed to majority rule is because the white business community uh, eventually withdrew its support. And they withdrew its support because their profits, their bottom line was being hurt by apartheid.
0: We've had a lot of shows, Barbara, about um, race, ra- racism, historical racism in America. One of my favorite guests is the wonderful Emory University um, uh, historian um, and political uh, thinker, sociologist Carol Anderson. What can be, you mentioned that the second variable is racial divisions. What can be done on the race front in America to head Reg- off civil war?
1: Regulate social media. It would have an enormous impact. I, you know, uh, we... Over the next few years, we're going to see um, the many ways in which social media is dividing not only our society but other societies as well. And we're gonna we're gonna get more and more uh, data and information about how recommendation engines are are leading uh, citizens towards the ideological extreme and 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 radicalizing people um, uh, mostly on the right, but also on the left. Uh, and uh, you know, we regulate all sorts of different industries if we feel like there's going to be harm to citizens and we regulate all sorts of other media. And um I think that actually would have an enormous immediate impact.
0: There was no there was no social media though in the nineteenth century, and America fought one of the bloodiest civil wars in history over race. So, Uh, I I take your point about regulating social media, but it's not going to get rid of racism, is it?
1: No, but back in the 1850s, we had a situation where you had white landowners and you had their uh, African-American slaves. And um, that was a radically different uh, situation where the only way that those landowners could keep their slaves was to fight a war and, and the North was unwilling to compromise on that, on that issue. And, and that's not the situation now. Today, you actually have to craft, um, uh, you know, there is racism today, but to create a situation where, where um, uh, Americans would once again fight each other, you have to craft uh, and, and um, stoke, stoke that hatred because we don't have slavery as the, the uh, focal point.
0: Barbara, we had um, a very distinguished diplomat and expert on Russia, Fiona Hill, on the show recently. Uh, she stood up to Donald Trump uh, and his yeah. anocratic tendencies. Um, she compares post-industrial America with post-industrial Russia, and she calls for a Marshall Plan scale reforms of our mm. social, economic, and cultural institutions. Do you agree with people like Hill that we need profound structural change to head off the war alongside the regulation of social media?
1: I do. I do agree. One of the things that we know is uh, who tends to start civil wars. And most people think it's the poorest groups in society or immigrants or the most discriminated groups. And that's not often the case. It tends to be groups that had once been dominant um, but were losing power or had lost power. It's the groups whose status was declining and it's their resentment at their, this loss and their, their determination to re- regain their power that drives them to violence. And of course, if you look at what's happened, especially to the white working class over the last few decades, um, they have lost quite a lot. Um, they have lost on every measure uh, more than even Latinos and African-Americans who have um, at, at worst remained steady. Um, but white, the white working class has has lost in terms of rates of marriage, in terms of employment, in terms of, of wages. Uh, and there's real grievance there. And again, if they don't believe that the system is working for them, if they feel... Um, like there's, there's no means for them to improve their situation, um, then the more extreme elements of that group will begin to believe that violence is their only option. So yes, I do think uh, shoring up um, uh, our social programs, taking better care of all of our citizens um, would take away uh, the potential re- uh, group of recruits for the more extreme elements of our society.
0: Barbara, one of the things I I really enjoyed about your book, How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them, is the very personal touch, particularly at the end, because um, you come out uh, as a believer in America. I had the um, uh, Iranian-American writer Roya Hakakian on the show about a year ago, speaking very much in, in, in favor Uh, of the idea of America and you make it clear that your mother I think came from Switzerland your husband was from Canada and that at one point you were even thinking of leaving the country but you're a believer and for you ultimately perhaps in contrast with somebody like Stephen Marsh who as it happens lives in Canada uh, you're staying and you're fighting against civil war is that fair?
1: yes it is so the united states is going to be the first majority white country in the world to transition to majority non-white but it's going to happen in canada it's going to happen in new zealand it's going to happen in the uk it's going to happen with all the majority white european countries by about 2100. So the United States, I think, has this opportunity to lead the world, to show it how we can transition from uh, what had once been an, an ethnically or a relatively ethnically homogeneous country to a multi-ethnic country and still maintain democracy and still economically thrive, and in fact, come out better as a result. So I'm committed to that ideal. I really do believe we will be better. I live in California. California is already minority white and it has thrived as a minority white um, state. And and I really, really do wanna be here to help, um, help America with that transition.
0: Well, it's a really interesting book. Uh, how civil wars start and how to stop them. It's one of the the major books of early twenty twenty two. Congratulations, um, very much uh, on 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 your new book, uh, Barbara. Uh, you, as a, as you suggested, you're in San Diego. Is it sunny down there? It's rather wet up here. It always it's always sunshine in San Diego, isn't it?
1: It is sparkly blue skies, absolutely spectacular.
0: Good. Well. You're lucky to be there. Unfortunately, yeah. in San Francisco, it's raining, and I think it's cold and snowy in the rest of the country. <laughs> uh, in addition to your new book, uh, for those of us uh, without the good fortune uh, to have your weather, so we have to stay inside. What else should people be reading in these odd, uh, troubling times as we as we as we move towards January sixth, twenty twenty two.
1: Well, I'll give a nonfiction and I'll give two fiction books. The nonfiction book that I think is terrific and that fills in a lot of gaps in people's knowledge is a book called um, How the South Won the Civil War. And it outlines how um, uh, Southern politicians very, very effectively came. Um, uh, forced the rest of the United States to compromise and and essentially was able to maintain um uh a mm, uh, a system that benefited them. Uh and then the the two fiction pieces and I that's something
0: I assume to be avoided. We don't want that. So oh, no,
1: we don't want that. But right. most people don't realize all of the compromises that have been made to keep um, uh, Southern whites, many of whom ha- were deeply racist, happy. Um, and it has been to the detriment of our country. Um, and then I right now I'm in love with a writer named Lily King from Portland, Maine. Uh, her book Euphoria and her uh, follow up book called um, Writers and Lovers is just pure joy and so that's been my antidote to reading about really depressing things
0: well barbara f walter author of how civil war started is depressing but i think in your hands it's also inspiring but uh it offers us potential you return agency to the issue of civil war there's nothing inevitable in your book and it's ultimately as with all these things especially all political things it's up to us so congratulations on the book and thank you again for um for for reminding people of their centrality in the political yeah. future. Keep well, Barbara, and I'd love to have you back on the show. These issues aren't going away, for better no. or worse, and no. we need wise women like you to make sense of them all. So thank you again, and congratulations on the book.
1: Thank you very much, Andrew. It's my pleasure.
0: Thanks so much for watching this Keen On show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting, and if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms. All major podcast platforms carry the Keen on Show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keen On show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally. Uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows, you might email me at a.keenme.com. at Or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of of people with interesting new books and projects which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keen On. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future.